Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. We are delighted to share a presentation from the Patients as Partners Europe Conference on what does a truly patient-centered healthcare system look like in five to ten years. This presentation was given by Alistair Kent, Director at Genetic Alliance. Please note that the upcoming Patients as Partners Europe event is taking place January 28th and 29th at the Millennium Gloucester Hotel in London. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everybody, uh, and congratulations on uh, getting out of bed uh, and making it back here. I'll try and speak softly so I don't disturb those of you who had a hard night uh, last night. Now, uh, my topic is a look to the future in five or ten years from now, uh, and I'm reminded of, of the words of, of Neil Spohr, the, uh, the Danish uh, physicist, who said, prediction is difficult, especially when it's about the future. So, you know, this may not happen, but let's, let's hope so. Just a bit of background. Genetic Alliance UK is the UK umbrella body for over 200 patient support groups. Uh, we cover the whole spectrum of rare and genetic diseases from those conditions which, uh, you know, they seem to have more middle European doctors in the name of the syndrome than there are families affected by, by the condition to common complex diseases like heart disease or cancer or, or whatever. But the thing that brings our members together is the fact that the diseases that affect them are by and large intractable. Most of them with current knowledge are incurable. A lot of them are progressive and not a few of them are lethal. And in fact, <clears throat> many of the conditions that are supported by our members uh, affect children. So I was delighted yesterday when we, you know, right at the end of the day almost, we got to the point where we started talking about children because we mustn't forget the needs of children when looking at how we provide effective care, uh, effective support, and encourage research and development for novel therapies in otherwise lethal diseases. Because when you think about it, you know, there's nothing more horrendous for a parent than losing a child. You know, and if you're in that situation, you know, you want something to be done. So, you know, it's important to remember when thinking about patient engagement that it also, we mustn't forget about the children. So what Genetic Alliance UK does, uh, we rather grandiosely describe it as strategic advocacy from a patient and family perspective. Uh, that's a rather uh, posh way of saying constructive shit-stirring. <laughs> you know, what we want to do is work uh, across the stakeholder spectrum to help all those other interested parties listen to the voice of our members so that they, as Andrew said, can do a better job because they are taking on, on board uh, our needs and our concerns. So, here we are now. There's a lot of rhetoric about listening to the patient voice. And I'm not just going to be talking about research and clinical development and novel therapies. I'm going to be talking across the spectrum of... of, of Healthcare, from you know service delivery, planning, patient engagement, research, clinical development, and so on. Because you know patients are not own, <coughs> excuse me patients are not only interested in being enrolled in a clinical trial. You know they have an interest in getting good quality services and support, whatever the option, the opportunities uh, available. And at the moment we see too little real 
patient engagement. I mean, we heard yesterday of some brilliant examples. You know, uh, uh, the, the, the speakers from Arthritis Research UK, Parkinson's UK, talked about the journey that they've been on to turn from being an organisation that works for patients to an organisation that works with patients. And it was a fantastic story. But most, of, most patient organisations don't have to go on that journey because they're too small to employ staff, to have clinicians and doctors on the payroll, to have professionals. They're made up of people who either have a disease or are supporting someone with a disease or caring for children with a disease. So they know what the reality of the lived experience of people with their condition is on a daily basis. But having the opportunities and the time to get involved can be a challenge. As we heard again, still in too many situations today, despite people saying, we really need to listen to the patient voice, the patient voice is central to us, it's terribly important. And you find yourself as the, you know, the sole patient representative in a committee of experts who have, are all paid to be there. They've all been trained to be there. And they turn around at the end of the conversation and say, we're really glad you're here. You do agree with us, don't you? And by that point, you know, the ship has sailed. The train has left the station. It's gone. It's gone. It's too late to change something because all the decisions have really been made. And what too often is being looked for, is a rubber stamp. That sort of, you tick the box, you've engaged with the patient, and you move on. Now, there are obviously examples where this is not the case. I mean, Richard here it sits on the, the Access Review Committee for Genomics England, which is a committee made up of people who have volunteered for the 100,000 Genomes Project, had their genome sequenced, and now have a say in the uses that are made of it. I think that's a fair summary, isn't it, Richard? Brilliant. Yeah, good. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm not French, so I need the compliments, you know. <laughs> thank you. So from here then to eternity, to the future, we all have the ideal of a true partnership with all the stakeholders. You know, we don't just want to talk to the industry. Uh, we want to talk to the, to the academics, the clinicians, the policymakers, and so on and, uh, and, and so forth. So that right across the spectrum, we can have a say in the delivery of, uh, and the planning and the organization, the timing of effective healthcare. We need to be engaged from the bright idea to the evaluation of the outcomes. You know, so it's, it's a continuous process uh, of evolution. It's a bit like the small print on the bottom of, of the motor car adverts, you know, where if you look down there it says, our policy is one of continuous improvement. The specifications of the vehicle you buy may be different from the one that is featured in, in the advertisement. Now, hopefully, uh, in terms of patient engagement, we don't do what the car manufacturers do, and that's show the deluxe model at the top of the range, but expect you to go off with the basic one because that's the only one you can afford. So, you know, we want to be there right across the spectrum of, uh, of progress, uh, and that includes the policy, the priority setting, the planning, and the performance, the delivery. I love alliteration, as you may have noticed. But, you know, it's not just about you know, have we written a good leaflet? 
But are we thinking about designing an appropriate program of service delivery uh, and support? Uh, can we make it user-friendly for, for, for us, the end users? So why do we want that? You know, uh, it's not because we're stuck for things to do. You know, um, patient and family engagement at all stages in the process adds value. I don't know a single person who works in a healthcare-related environment who sets out in the morning to say, today I'm going to do a really, really crap job. I'm going to screw up as many people's lives as I can. No, you want to work well. You want to do the best job you can. Circumstances may conspire to prevent you from doing that. You, your, your opportunities to do the right thing may be limited by things which you can't control. But what we want to do is to work with you to help you do the best job you possibly can. Because if you do a good job, our experience will be better. You will get health gain out of it. We will get longer lives that have more quality, more opportunity to perhaps spend less time being a patient and doing other things. And you will do a better job if you listen to us and the things that matter. So we can help you to understand the disease and its context. You know, what is our lived experience of the condition that you are seeking to provide services, support, interventions, therapies, or whatever for? You can help us, uh, we can help you to determine those things that really matter to us, not just those things that can be measured. You know, if you've got a complex disease, you will know that there are some things about that disease that really screw up your life. And there are some things that, well, they're a nuisance, but you can live with them. You know, you'd rather they weren't there, but, you know, you can get on with it. So if, we're, if you're going to do something for us, we'd really like you to focus your efforts on those things which screw up our lives. And if you do then A, we'll be more likely to cooperate with you. B, it will make the uptake of whatever it is you plan to change more likely because those other stakeholders looking in will see that it's important. And C, it will actually benefit us as well. And that's also important. We can bring value in planning research and development strategies for, for clinical development. You know, funnily enough... Patients with, with complex diseases were not put on this planet to give professionals interesting things to do. You know, so what we want is for you to think about how you organise your clinical development programmes, your service delivery, your, your uh, policy, in ways that fit our lives. Don't expect us to fit our lives into your protocol. Because, you know, that's going to be difficult. Because we have other things in our lives as well as being patients or, or carers of patients or parents of patients. So make your plans fit our lives, not the other way around. And we can help you to define what good looks like in terms of sp service specification uh, and delivery. I was talking to... Uh, 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 a friend of mine, she has two teenage boys who both have the same rare disease. And she was saying that uh, her boys have uh, appointments, I think she said, with six different clinical specialties, six different consultants, 
in five different hospitals. Now, the lads are um, uh, coming up to GCSEs, coming up to, to, to A-levels. Now, over the course of a year, she has to go to about 30 different hospital appointments. She drives hundreds of miles, probably thousands of miles. She spends a fortune on car parking. The disruption to these boys, to the boys' education, is significant. You'd think that with two boys, they could at least put the <coughs> excuse me, put the appointments on the same day. Not a bit of it. You know, they rattle round the southwest of England, going from hospital to hospital, and, and using up huge amounts of time just to keep things, uh, keep keep attending the appointments and getting the monitoring and support they need. You know, good would look like getting both appointments on the same day, planning the appointments so that they happen outside school time, you know, in the evening or possibly even on a Saturday or something, so you don't have to take time off work to take them, and all these things. We can help in terms of determining the value and evaluating the benefit and, and risk. Uh, again, uh, I was talking to a chap, we ran a, uh, a few years ago now, we ran a citizen's jury about benefit and risk in uh, the licensing of, of novel therapies. But our jury was made up of people who were all affected by or caring for people with life-limiting diseases. I sat on the Orphan Medicinal Products Committee at the European Medicines Agency for six years. Uh, and that committee was made up of traditional regulators and patient representatives. And I think one of the things that the patient representatives were able to do was to reverse the thinking. Uh, you know, instead of it being risk-benefit, it was benefit-risk that we started talking about. And talking about acceptable levels uh, of risk. You know, not all risks are equally worth taking and not all benefits uh, are equally desirable. Uh, one of our jurors uh, said, you know, having a, having a rare disease, having a life-limiting condition, it's a bit like being in an aeroplane. And the cabin attendant comes along and says, excuse me, sir, here's a parachute. 90% chance it's not going to open, but would you like to jump out the aeroplane? Now, for a traditional regulator, that's completely unacceptable. No way, 90% risk of failure. But for a patient, not jumping out of the aeroplane, particularly when you point out that the wings have fallen off and there's a 100% chance of dying, that 10% chance of success might be worth taking. Not will be worth taking, but might be worth taking. Talk about boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. What kills them in the end is heart failure. So if you have an intervention that might help but carries with it a significant risk of an adverse cardiac involvement, families are going to walk away from it because they love their boys and they want to keep them for as long as possible. But other things might be more uh, acceptable. And it will also help in reducing waste and making the best use of scarce resources. That mum I talked about who was taking her boys around different hospitals, you know, sometimes... She can't attend. She can't, get, she can't get the time off work. So she goes down as a DNA, which in this case is not uh, a double helical molecule that codes for genetic information. It's a did not attend. And if you get too many DNAs, you get discharged, and you have to go back to go. 
well, you know, let's think about how we can avoid expensive consultants with scarce skills sitting there twiddling their thumbs because you can't get to the appointment. And in a time when we believe the rhetoric is about solidarity-driven healthcare, about healthcare being provided on the basis of need rather than the ability to pay, we face severe challenges where, where we need to rethink the way in which we plan and delivery, d- deliver our services. You know, there are loads of new opportunities to intervene. We see, uh, you know, the possibility of, of cures rather than just treatments. Um, there's been recently several gene transfer uh, therapies licensed by the medicines agency which shift those affected from being doomed to die to a, a more normal life expectancy. Radical transformation. Things like severe combined immune deficiencies, the, the babies in the bubble, who, if they get a gene transfer, become, they, they're no longer affected. They have a, a functioning immune system, which is, you know, a game changer in a hugely dramatic way. But how we can make sure that all those patients who stand to benefit can access those therapies in a timely uh, uh, manner. Health services are struggling with demographic pressures. We're all living longer with increasing comorbidities. So maintaining the pressure on uh, industry to keep innovating and delivering sustainable, available, affordable interventions, whilst also responding to the needs of an ageing population who look to... uh, social care, to look to support, to enable them to remain in their own homes and what have you. You know, we can help with thinking about how to manage those pressures because we're living with them too. We we see the inefficiencies. uh, uh, We we can think of the novel ways of working that would bring the opportunities together in a manageable way. There are the resource constraints. Well, you know, I'll let you into a secret. Patients have absolutely no interest in things that don't work. Now, large parts of the health service seem to have interest in things that don't work. There was a report published about a year ago by the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges that highlighted 40 things that are in everyday practice in the National Health Service that have no clinical benefit and in some cases are positively harmful. Have they stopped? What do you think? Of course they haven't. Because the inertia of the system keeps on going forward. Now, you know, if only you stop doing those things that don't work, you might have some time to think about the things that do and help. And we can help you with that. We can tell you. And, of course, we've got increasing expectations. We all expect that we will be able to access uh, high-quality health care we're not prepared to be, you know, at the bottom of the pile where doctor knows best and we do as we're told and are grateful whether or not it works uh, any longer. And, of course, we see, uh, particularly now, the idea of healthcare systems struggling with short-term crises in the absence of a long-term strategy. You know, it, did you hear Theresa May on the television the other day talking about the, the, the winter fr- flu crisis... Uh, For probably about four billion years, winter has followed autumn. (laughs) How much notice do you need, you know? 
So she was saying, oh, well, it was a planned strategy to cancel elective surgery. It would have been a planned strategy not to plan elective surgery because you knew you were going to have increased demand from, you know, a winter. And if you didn't have the winter flu crisis, you can bring things forward. You know, it's just this kind of seeming inability to, to, to respond to, you know, eminently predictable things and to plan for them. But I've talked a lot about what we can do. Let's have a, let's have a reality check here. We, the patients, are the only involuntary partners in this process. Everybody else, be you a doctor, a researcher, a worker in industry, a regulator, whoever, you've made a choice. You know, you could have been bin men or, or chartered accountants or, you know, uh, astronauts or something, but you chose to work in this field. We didn't choose it. Nobody says... Oh, I had a really fulfilling life, you know. What would, what would be a good challenge to have? I know, Parkinson's. That would be fun. Or we've got a boy and a girl. Let's have a child with a, a life-limiting, incurable disease that's poorly understood and nothing can be... That'll be an interesting... No, this is a situation that is put on us that we are quite keen to escape from. It's an imposition. And it has not just the physical impact of the disease but it has mental health issues it has societal issues our choices are constrained because of living with the consequences of having or caring for someone with with a complex disease and it affects us financially i mentioned earlier the petrol and the parking but it's also the lost opportunity if i built up this support network around me and my company turns to me and says is a really fantastic promotion, but you've got to move to take it. You're probably going to say no because of the struggle to keep the services going that enable you to live your life. And complex and confusing systems. Most people who work in the National Health Service don't know how it works, where the decisions are made, where the buttons are that you're going to... You know, as a patient, why should I be expected to have a greater insight into the processes that are needed to be gone through in order to achieve change than the people who work in the system? Why should I need to be able to understand how a clinical development program is put together if I choose not to? But if I do choose to get engaged, to get involved, to try and have my tuppence worth uh, of, of, of time, then... You know, there should be ways in which I can find out how best to use my scarce resources to help you put your scarce resources to best advantage. And quite frankly, you know, we'd really rather be doing something else. You know, give us a choice. You can take the kids to the beach or you can go for a multidisciplinary clinic in, in a hospital 100 miles away uh, in the middle of a city you don't know and have to take a day off work to do it and probably stay overnight in a hotel to enable it to, to happen. Frank, I'd rather go to the beach. You know, we really would like to be free of the impact of the disease, and we want to work with you in order to make it more possible that if not us, then our, our, our descendants will also be able to. So what do we want? We want to be taken seriously. You know, none of this you do agree with us, don't you? Oh, no, this is far too complicated for the patient to understand. It involves technical stuff. Well, true. You know, ask me 
what statistical calculations you need to do in order to check that your clinical trial is adequately powered to deliver the result. And I haven't a clue. You know, you could use Bayesian statistics, Boolean algebra, or messages written on the liver of a chicken, for all I know. If it works, then there are people you can ask to work that out. But ask me what matters. Ask me about my life. Ask me about fitting your protocol to my life, and I can help you, you know? But we need to be supported to participate fully, you know? We need you to come to us. We don't need to have these conversations where everybody uses the language of, uh, of, of the professionals. And we're sitting there going, what's that about? You know, all this l- jargon, the lingo, which means you need training to come to us as much as we need training to come to you. We need to receive timely, user-friendly care that reflects current scientific possibilities and best clinical practice. I mean, it goes without saying, but too often you find that there were things that could have been done but they weren't, or they were done too late, or they were done out of order, or, you know, the opportunity for you to enrol in a clinical trial was lost because your consultant couldn't be asked to do the paperwork. That's a technical term, by the way. Um, It's used in evaluating consultants' performance and, and determining their eligibility for merit awards. You know, we don't want to lose out on opportunities because of irrelevant... There are enough problems in our lives without additional ones being created by inefficiencies in the service. We want coordinated and integrated care. I've mentioned the lady who, whose boys keep rattling around, but we want, you know, we expect our clinicians to talk to each other. You know, we don't want to be the channel of, of communication between clinicians in different specialties. We want those institutions to be able to communicate uh, effectively if we have to travel to different places. And we need the data and the information to flow across the organisational boundaries. You know, health and social care don't talk to each other. It would be really nice if the people who are responsible for providing us with our care and support in the community from the local authority actually understood a little bit about our condition without us having to explain it to them the whole time. And over time, did you know that it was 23rd today, 24th? 24th of, of, of January 2018. A child born today will reach his or her 16th birthday on the 24th of January 2034. At that point, if he or she is a patient with a complex and life-limiting condition, assuming he lives that long, he will transition or she will transition from paediatric to adult care. How much notice do you need to think about what needs to happen in organising age-appropriate service delivery for young people who are transitioning from paediatric to adults? You know, it's not appropriate for a 16-year-old boy or girl to be put on a general ward where the youngest next patient is 83, where they're dementing or or got, you know, huge problems uh, of their own to deal with. And they probably don't want some bolshy teenager rattling around the place being hormonal. So we need also to be able to be supported to take part in the research and the development that will advance the knowledge 
and improve the outcomes that are available, if not for us, then for those who follow. So we need a future-facing healthcare system. There are loads of opportunities. Novel therapies, genetics, genome editing, stem cells, precision medicine, so on and so forth. We've got technologies, bioinformatics, remote monitoring, social media. You know, just be prepared for when we unblind your clinical trial on our Facebook group because we work out who's on the placebo or who's getting standard of care and who's not. You know, so think about how you're going to deal with that. We need... Uh, healthcare that's system-based, not organ-centred. I'm told that if you have Alzheimer's disease, which obviously is a neurodegenerative condition affecting predominantly elderly people, and if you have retinitis pigmentosa, which is a progressive inherited form of blindness, at the molecular level, there are similarities. And a common approach may be beneficial. But if you have Alzheimer's, you see a neurologist. If you have RP, you see an ophthalmologist. Now, neurologists and ophthalmologists are based in different departments, probably on opposite sides of the hospital. They read different journals. They go to different conferences. They probably play golf in different golf clubs, for all I know. But they need to talk, and we need to find a way of bringing that new knowledge that genetics, that bioinformatics, that, you know, precision medicine is developing into healthcare in a system-based way so that we can benefit and you can continue to be able to innovate and improve the services and support you provide and the therapies that develop. So we need a new model for patient and family engagement that brings in the opportunity to think from the planning stage through to the delivery of outcomes. We need to have that space to participate. Sometimes being a patient feels like this, you know. Here you are, there's a few of you in the middle, right? And it's a hostile environment and you're desperately trying to preserve what you've got. But you've got all these people who want you to engage. You know, look, there's a regulator, uh, there's a principal investigator, there's a clinician, uh, here's somebody from a pharma company, uh, there's a, somebody from a clinical commissioning group, uh, there's somebody from NHS England, here's NICE, you know. And they're all circling around saying, you know, we want you, we want you to engage, we want you to engage. It's a bit like throwing goats at a boa constrictor. You know, if you've ever seen a boa constrictor try and swallow... You know, a goat is huge, it struggles, doesn't want to be swallowed, and it's a huge effort to tr- for the boa constrictor to try and get its jaws around it. And then once it has, the boa constrictor has to go and lie down for a long time to digest it. Well, as a patient, you feel like that. You know, you struggle to swallow the goats that are being thrown at you by all these people, and then you need to lie down and digest it because you're exhausted by the effort of understanding. So, you know, if that's patient engagement today, this is more of what we'd like to see. This is a dance troupe. Now, I like the analogy of a dance troupe because, one, you've got the patient at the centre. You've got all these other actors who have all got a part to play. They all know what they're supposed to be doing. They're all working together to produce a performance that is harmonious integrated and delivers positive benefits to a wider community. So, you know, let's move from getting the wagons in a circle to this, the dance troupe. So the 
concluding messages, really, are all about teamwork. You know, this is Henry Ford. Coming together is a beginning. Keeping together is progress. But working together is success. Let's see if we can. Because as Helen Keller said, alone we can do so little. Together we can do so much. And remember, you know, um, as Mary Baker often says, good health is just an incomplete diagnosis. At some point, we're all going to want to benefit from high-quality, integrated, timely, professionally delivered, user-friendly healthcare. And nobody should feel that they're too expensive, too difficult, too rare, too awkward to fit into the system. Because, uh, slightly after L'Oreal, we're all worth it. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Alistair. That's great. Um, very uh, interesting thoughts there from Alistair. Lots of great ideas. Um, we're a bit up against it time-wise, but we do need to have some interactivity here. So if anybody has any questions... Alison is approaching the mic at great speed. Even faster now. I think we'll have two rapid questions, please. Uh, thank you very much, um, Alistair. Just a quick comment. I would recommend anybody listen to uh, Tessa Jow's interview this morning on her experience of, of uh, brain cancer. It was really fascinating to, to much that's been talked about today. But my question is about, given the fact that health systems are funded and paid for in slightly different ways across sort of the European peace and across the globe, I wonder is there a difference in the way that us as patients either express what we want, how it's listened or heard, and then how it's responded to? Yes. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> no. I think there, is, um, there are significant dif differences between healthcare systems which are driven by the notion of solidarity. You know, in other words, where everybody is uh, in a population is expected, uh, expects to be able to receive health care. And it doesn't matter whether it's a, a beverage model like the National Health Service that's funded out of taxation or a Bismarckian system funded by social insurance, as many of the Western Europe. You know, the, the, the key about that is uh, it's your need, not the ability to pay. Now, there is obviously a difference between, the, between those systems where, you know, we talk about rights, about good practice, about joint working, about leaving no one behind, all these kind of uh, uh, messages we're trying to get across uh, from you know, a US system, which is based on mutuality, which is where you pool populations with, with risk and the premium they pay to achieve the cover uh, is, is, is set and it's a question of whether you can afford it or not. I mean, I... I can't imagine how the, the US healthcare system uh, can be so set against the universal, or sections of the, uni of the American population seem to be so set against the provision of universal healthcare. It seems to me crazy. Uh, but that's the way they choose to do things. And in that, you inevitably get a much more uh, confrontational legis legislation based approach rather than the um, the building of partnership and the shared uh, expectation and the engagement with people who you work on the assumption that actually they're trying to do a good job. They're not trying to, you know, tick the boxes to make sure they don't get sued. But, you know, I mean, I don't know about the American system in any detail. 
I do know that it seems bizarre to me that in some hospitals there's a notice on the door saying you're not allowed to bring a gun or a knife in here. But... Great. Thanks a lot, Alison, and Alistair, for answering the question. Any, another question or reflection from anybody before we move to the next session? Do you want to... Yeah, go to the mic, please. Hi. Uh, Katja Rudell from uh, Patient Services Shire. Um, would like to talk to you after this, um, but I have a question... How can we plan five to ten years ahead when oftentimes we have uh, potentially short-term contracts, the whole universe, legislative processes are changing, everything's kind of moving rather fast-paced, so how can you instill the ten years in, in sort of in now? That's the question. I think what you have to do is to try and define where you want to be in five or ten years' time, and then work back to where you are now and think about the steps that you have to take in order to get there or the, the things that would stop you from getting there. And then you think, OK, well, if that's a problem, what can we do to remove it, to get round it, to go a different route or whatever? You know, if you haven't got a clear goal where you're going, then, you know, you don't know whether you're moving forward or going round and round in circles. And, and as was said yesterday, if you only take baby steps, it doesn't matter so long as those baby steps are taking you towards the point you want to go. And if, you know, if there's a problem with the need or the apparent current need to have complex contracts, well, think about... You know, let's go through the contracts and see if there are things we can simplify or take out. You know, are we really going to be sharing sensitive patient identifiable data with our patient advisory group? Well, if we're not, you know, we don't need to have a con uh, clause in the contract saying you will not disclose patient sensitive data. Well, I won't have it. So I can't disclose it. So it doesn't need to be in the contract, you know, things like that. So, you know, Define where you want to be, look at the things that are going to stop you, and then try and find ways of, of, of avoiding them, eliminating them, or altering them. Great. Thank you very much, um, Alistair. Thank you to the two questioners. We hope you enjoyed the presentation. The 2019 Patients as Partners Europe event will be on January 28th and 29th in London. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Again, that's theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.